Today on Truth and Politics and Culture, we will talk about two court rulings, one concerning an abortion pill and the other concerning climate change. We will also talk about trouble in the Tui family, discuss whether free speech can ever be a crime, and talk about the difference between being nice and being kind. This is Dr. Tony Beam. It's time to crank it up. everybody. Thanks for joining us here today at uh, Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. We appreciate you taking us in live. We're on Facebook. We're on YouTube. Uh, you can go to the website, drtonybeam.com, and you can click on the Listen Live button, and that should take you to some audio that you can listen to so that you can listen live while you're doing whatever else you're going about your business today. Uh, if you'd like to download the podcast, it's easy to follow. You just pick a place. Uh, podcast is available at Spotify, Apple Podcast, and just about anywhere else you can find a podcast. And uh, we'd appreciate you uh, jumping on there. If you like the show, be sure and leave us a good review, uh, because when you do that, it causes other people to say, hey, this guy must be pretty good. Uh, these people like him, so let's give it a shot, and then they can decide whether they like it or not. Um, I, I was uh, chastised yesterday for my choice of hat. Um, not not really chastised. It was just um, somebody sort of observed that I switched over from my usual Dallas Cowboys, Atlanta Braves, North Greenville University to um, to what I call my old man cap. You know, the flat hat. Um, so I was just trying to mix it up, you know, diversity is, is the buzzword. So I figured hat diversity would be important. You know, it, it might be, uh, something that would appease the left and that, uh, YouTube and Facebook and everybody would like me and I, I wouldn't be suspended or anything because I, I believe in hat diversity. Um, actually I just grabbed the hat when I was going through the living room because I was late getting in here to the microphone. Uh, but today I'm back to my Dallas Cowboys. Uh, they're getting ready for another preseason game this weekend. So looking forward to the NFL cranking back up the, the Atlanta Braves swept the despised Yankees. Um, actually I don't despise the Yankees. I, I like baseball as you know. Um, and the Yankees are, are one of the best teams all time. You go back historically, look at their records and so forth. But uh, in, anyway, the Yankees are the – if you remember the World Series, I guess, see, what was it, 1997, 98? Might have been – it might even have been 96. I, I can't remember uh, the exact date, but uh, we had, you know, the, the Braves won two games. They were in the World Series with the Yankees. They won the first two games, Andrew Jones – hit home runs, and just looked like a phenom um, in that World Series. And then the Braves didn't win another World Series game. And I mean, usually you win the first two games, um, you got a good chance of winning the series. And the Braves were shut out. The rest of the, the Yankees swept four games from the Braves and won that World Series. So since then, it uh, does my heart good when the Braves sweep the Yankees, which they did this week. In fact, I think the Yankees only scored – 
uh, two or three runs, and the Braves scored a bunch. So hopefully Atlanta's starting pitching is is back on track. We talked about that a little bit yesterday. Um, as the Braves head into the meaty part of the season, they got about a 12-and-a-half game lead over the Phillies, who are in second place in their division. So um, looks like it's going to be a good fall. Uh, might have another Braves World, World Series. Who knows? All right, um, different things to talk about today. Uh, I have a Palmetto Family Council meeting today that I'll be headed to here in a little bit. Um, so we may uh, abbreviate the show slightly, but I do have a couple of court cases that I want to start out talking about today because um, they're, they're very important, both of them, as relates to political issues. Uh, these are medical issues that have become political issues, or at least the first one is. And the second one is about climate change, which is a weather issue, uh, something that we really can't do a whole lot about. Uh, that has turned into a political issue that is uh, absolutely a tenet of destiny for the left. I mean, if you're if you don't believe in man-made climate change, uh, you can't get your progressive card. It, it's a it's just like abortion. Um, and so these two things are actually pretty well uh, connected when it comes to the mind of progressives. They they believe that you have to be. Uh, a woman has an ultimate right to kill a baby in the womb, no matter what. And, um, of course, climate change is going to kill us all. So why they care about whether a baby dies in the womb or dies from climate change? I mean, it, 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 it seems a little fascinating to me, the logic that goes behind some of this stuff. But um, with, with climate change, it's an existential threat to the existence of every person on the planet. Um, and there's a novel... Um, lawsuit that was filed in Montana that has been filed in other places, other places across the country, but has not gained any traction. Um, but in Montana, uh, this lawsuit was successful. And I'll, I'll give you the details about that in just a minute. But first, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, according to Ryan Mills over at National Review, uh, concluded yesterday that the abortion pill Mifepristone should, be, should remain on the market but that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration went too far when it relaxed restrictions on the drug in 2016 and made the pills available via mail in 2021. Um, as, it was, as Roe versus Wade was overturned and as abortion restrictions began to pro proliferate around the country, and even before Roe was sent to the dustbin of history where it belongs, um, you, you had a lot of states that were passing restrictive abortion laws and to get around that, you had an administration that was working hard to change the rules, that at least the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration, uh, Food and Drug Administration, excuse me, um, was working hard to make to, to lighten the rules when it comes to medication like mifepristone, which is used, is known as RU486, um, it's, um, it's the abortion pill. And the, there are, as you can imagine, any kind of medication that takes a natural process like a woman's pregnancy and alters it, causes the baby to die, um, is, is, is going to have some serious side effects. I mean, women who take mifepristone have, uh, some suffer excessive bleeding. Um, some, there are other detrimental side effects that women are, are informed about, but still, um, of course, they're willing to risk for the convenience of being able to take a pill as opposed to going to an abortion clinic. 
and maybe facing a pro-life protesters or or whatever she might have to to go through to go to an abortion clinic and and there is shame attached to that i mean the fact that you're driving into a place that's dedicated to the taking of life in the womb uh, that you've made that decision it's a very public thing and of course mifepristone makes that a, a private thing but there have been a lot of questions about the health uh, side effects negative health side effects for women and the FDA has not been particularly um, robust in their uh, investigation into the side effects. At least that's what multiple lawsuits have alleged. And, and so the restrictions have just, as, as states have made more restrictive abortion laws, the FDA has decided, well, we're going to intervene here. We don't like those decisions, so we're going to lessen the restrictions on the abortion pill to make it more widely available to kind of overcome some of these restrictions that are taking place in the states. So we have a 96-page ruling by three-judge panel at the Fifth Circuit Court that is, and one thing that's important to understand, this ruling is not going to have any effect immediately on mifepristone because the Supreme Court has already ruled on this and stayed any kind of, uh, when I say they've ruled on it, they, they issued a stay uh, while all of these appeals and different lawsuits throughout the country are playing out. Uh, mifepristone is going to continue to be available on the market. Uh, it, it, this is eventually going to probably, it's going to end up at the Supreme Court, but as the Supreme Court is wont to do, and really, uh, quite frankly, it's the right thing to do to allow the legal process to play out in the lower courts before the Supreme Court steps in um, or before the Supreme Court decides to take a case. They want to see what the appellate courts, what the district courts, what the circuit courts are all going to do, how they're going to treat the law. And then they're going to have law to look at to see if the these lower courts have made the right decisions and, and then they'll step in. And that doesn't necessarily mean they will, but it's likely that they will because they put they basically put a stay in place and said the drug has to remain available uh, until all the appeals are exhausted. So the 96-page ruling, uh, it's not going to have any immediate practical effect because of what I just said about the Supreme Court decision. The Justice Department is going to appeal the ruling, of course, because this is the Biden administration, and it's one of the most left-wing administrations in U.S. history, and they are 100% dedicated to making abortion available at any time during a pregnancy with no exceptions. I mean, this is, um, it, it, this is something that the left has now become. It's a, it's a far cry from abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. I mean, that, that was the mantra back in the Bill Clinton days. It, it kind of survived through the beginning of the Obama years, but it is, it, it's been completely abandoned now because there's no pretext. Um, I don't think that progressives ever wanted abortion to be safe uh, or cared whether it was safe. Um, I know they wanted it to be legal, uh, but they certainly didn't want it to be rare. And that's been played out in... Uh, all these lawsuits and and all of the vitriol that has come from progressives when the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. So we've got a completely different viewpoint coming from progressives now when it comes to abortion. Uh, babies in the womb mean nothing uh, for for the most part to progressives, and it's all about the selling the idea that abortion is health care. 
and that it's all about a woman and that her uh, she has full autonomy over her body which by the way um, I don't I, you're not you're not going to find me arguing against a woman's autonomy over her body what I take issue with is that when another body is created and a woman becomes pregnant and we're talking about the autonomy of a baby in the womb it fascinates me that all of a sudden personal autonomy doesn't matter it only matters for the woman who is pregnant. It means nothing for the baby that's been created. And that's completely illogical if you're going to make a logically consistent argument about the, uh, the primacy of personal autonomy. Why is it being denied a human life? And, and all this business that women have been told for years that, you know, that it's not a baby, it's just a clump of cells. It's just medical science has a way of over time proving things like that to be false. We, we now know, for example, I mean, we don't have any excuse anymore. It's not just a clump of cells. Uh, a baby at conception uh, has everything that is necessary for that baby to grow, develop, and to eventually live outside the womb. The only thing that's required is time. And so you're, you're talking about picking and choosing when life should be respected based on the calendar, based on how old a person is. And that affects decisions that are made not only for a baby in the womb, but affect, it affects decisions made about the end of life. Because if we can look at a baby in the womb and say, well, um, it's not really a viable human being until this point, then that's not a far step away from looking at the other end of the spectrum and saying to a person who is in their 80s or 90s, uh, is this still a viable human being and what can they contribute to society and can we make decisions about life and death based on people that we determine are expendable because they've reached a certain point in life or they've achieved uh, a certain point of not being, in somebody's opinion, viable to the community anymore. I mean, these are these are deep philosophical questions that are being answered based on personal autonomy and 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 based quite frankly on expediency rather than on moral clarity. And that's why I think this, this is such an, an important debate. All right, back to the story here about Mifepristone. Eric Hawley, a lawyer for the conservative legal firm Alliance Defending Freedom, which challenged the FDA's approval of the two-pill chemical abortion regimen, hailed the ruling as a significant victory. Quote, today the Fifth Circuit rightly required the FDA to do its job and to restore crucial safeguards for women and girls, including ending illegal mail-order abortion, Hawley said during a virtual press conference. The FDA will finally be made to account for the damage it has caused to the health of countless women and the rule of law by unlawfully removing almost every meaningful safeguard from the chemical abortion drug regimen. Now, this is one of the things that makes this um, sort of unprecedented is, is the fact that safeguards that normally would be in place with a drug when it's released to the public were removed from mifepristone to make it more easily and quickly available. And so availability then became the main issue over the personal safety of the women who would be using the drug. And that's an incredible thought that the FDA got to a point where politically, I mean, I, I don't see how anybody could see this 
other than a political decision that was being made over a, a medical decision. If you're going to remove safeguards, what, for what purpose? You're, you're removing them simply to make... Is it because the drug really is safe? Is it because that um, we, we don't believe those safeguards are necessary anymore because we've uncovered some kind of new information that says that this is a, a totally safe process? No, this was a political decision, not based on the health and welfare of women, but based on the availability of the drug because, as we said in the opening, because of restrictions that were being put on abortion even before Roe versus Wade was overturned. Uh, the FDA's decision, uh, ar decisions around approving brain, brand name uh, Mifeprex in 2000 and then loosening restrictions on the pills in 2016 and 2021 were driven by politics. Um, this is, according to Hawley, uh, without regard to women's health or the rule of law. The Fifth Circuit ruling comes after a lower court ruling in April suspended the FDA's original approval of Mifepristone in 2000. At the time, U.S. District Judge Matthew Casemark, a conservative appointed by the Texas court uh, to the Texas court rather by former President Donald Trump, wrote that the FDA acquiesced on its legitimate safety concerns in violation of its statutory duty based on plainly unsound reasoning and studies that did not support its conclusions. Now, that's a stunning statement that that the FDA, in any kind of drug approval process, uh, there are multiple tests that are run on drug safety to make sure what's being put out there on the market is going to help and not harm. And so the, what the FDA did is not only take safeguards off of a medication that the safeguards were on since 2000, they actually went back and looked at studies conducted studies on the on the drug and then saw conclusions that would cause them to pause. In other words, the, the conclusion suggested that there were um, there, there might be problems and it, it might cause problems for women to take this medication. And they just they just ignored those conclusions because again, the availability of the drug, the ability to push back and to give women options in states that had restricted abortion, became the political objective, in, in, in my view, above the objective of making sure that the women were safe and it was okay for them to take this medication. Again, based on plainly unsound reasoning, this is the judge um, in, the, in the ruling back in April, uh, placed, uh, based on plainly unsound reasoning and studies that did not support its conclusions. Uh, less than a week later, a three-judge Fifth Circuit panel voted to restore access to Mifepristone, finding that the legal challenge appeared to have been filed after the statute of limitations had expired. So the Fifth Circuit, it's not that they looked at this ruling and found it to be uh, wrong because of the elements of the case. They found it to be wrong because it violated the statute of limitations. It was filed too late. The statute of limitations on the question surrounding the uh, the drug had had expired, and therefore there there shouldn't have been the decision. But the panel voted then two to one to put on hold recent changes that the FDA has made with the pills uh, that made them easier to obtain, including limiting necessary doctor visits, limiting doctor visits. I mean, what 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 could be the motivation behind that? I mean, it. it 
It, it, you would think that you're taking a drug that's going to alter your body, if you're a woman, it's going to alter your body, that's going to cause a miscarriage, uh, that's going to end your pregnancy, uh, a natural process that's being interrupted by this drug process, and, and you're going to limit the number of doctor visits, the supervision that may be necessary to make sure that there is no harm. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. Uh, limiting the number of necessary doctor visits and allowing the pills to be dispensed through the mail. The Supreme Court issued its full stay in the case later that month while all of this is being worked out again. Uh, the court found that the challenge to the FDA's 2000 approval of, of Mifeprex is likely barred by the statute of limitations. The court also upheld the FDA's 2019 approval of a generic version of Mifepristone, because the, uh, the, the plaintiff doctors, quote, have not shown that they are injured by that particular action. So in order for a lawsuit to be successful, there has to be an injured party. And the Fifth Circuit looked at this and said, well, uh, you know, the, the, the generic version has not caused any injury that we can see beyond the original version, and so we're, there's, there's nothing to see here legally. The court did affirm the lower court's ruling that struck down changes the FDA made in 2016-2021, including increasing the gestational age for which the drug could be used from seven weeks to 10, reducing the number of office visits required to get the drug from three to one. I mean, think, get, get your mind around that. Three office visits originally is what the FDA believed was necessary, and, and they cut that down from to, to just one, allowing non-doctors to prescribe the pills and eliminating the requirement for prescribers to report non-fatal adverse events involving the pills. Uh, in 2021, during the COVID-19 pandemic, the FDA allowed the pills to be delivered through the mail. So, you, in other words... Doctor, the the industry itself, prescribers who obviously have a vested interest because this is not free medication we're talking about here. Somebody's paying for it, whether it's the insurance company or the individual, and so they're they're basically saying that they're the non-fatal. It it has to be something that causes a woman to to die. It has to be a fatal effect if information about that is going to be retained and reported. Prescribers don't have to say unless if, if a woman suffers bleeding, if she um, is rushed to the hospital, if it affects her ability to have children in the future. I mean, there are a whole lot of questions that are left out of this that prescribers are, are allowed to uh, ignore, and, 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 and the FDA is fine with that. I mean, it's, it's got to elevate to the point that, that a person's life is taken before there's any information that is shared. Um, in loosening mifepristone safety restrictions, FDA failed to address several important concerns about whether the drug would be safe for the woman who uses it, the court wrote. It failed to consider the cumulative effect of removing several important safeguards at the same time. Now, I, th I think that's a, that, that's a major element here. I mean, there, there's a pancaking effect that takes place if you remove the number of doctor visits, if you, uh, that safeguard, if you remove the safeguard 
um, of, in other words, being able to get the, the drug in the mail, the easy, easy accessibility. Um, the, the safeguard there is that somebody has to go into a doctor's office. They've got to get a prescription. They've got to go. And so there's a process that they go through um, where uh, the woman's condition can be considered um, or past medical history. I mean, as you begin to as you begin to take away these safeguards, the effect, the negative effect, multiplies as each safeguard is removed. The court also said it failed to consider whether those major and interrelated changes might alter the risk profile such that the agency should continue to mandate reporting of non-fatal adverse effects. Yeah, that, that's something else the court didn't like. They didn't like the fact that the, the prescribers could get by with just simply talking about um, a, a bad episode of mif mifepristone if it turned fatal. None of the other effects that were bad were being reported. And that, what does that do? It allows the, allows the prescriber to say that something is safe and effective, whereas it, it, it doesn't have to reveal the number of times when a woman has had a serious problem or a serious adverse effect from the drug. It failed to gather evidence that affirmatively showed that mifepristone could be used safely without being prescribed and dispensed in person. Now, that, you see, that, that wasn't a thought. There were two thoughts here. It was an opportunity as—this is such a tired statement now that I hate to even use it, but you know, the idea that you never let a crisis go to waste, that was certainly prevalent in the pandemic. The, the pandemic was used as an opportunity in many cases for personal liberties to be curtailed and also to promote ideologies— of the left, and this is one of them. I mean, this is okay. It's the pandemic. We've got to completely upend the election protocols. Oh, it's the pandemic. We've got to shut down schools and have children uh, watching computer screens in order to get their education. Oh, it's the pandemic. Uh, we've got to make sure that women can keep having abortions. They've got to be able to keep killing their babies during a pandemic. So we've got to loosen the restrictions to get this medication into their hands. I mean, th this is the court recognized that the case stems from a lawsuit filed in November by ADF on behalf of the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, an organization of pro-life medical groups, as well as four pro-life doctors. Their lawsuit claims that the FDA never had the authority to approve the two pill chemical abortion regimen uh, when it did so nearly a quarter century ago. Lawyers for the government have argued the drugs are safe and effective now, how would they know that if prescribers are prohibited or not required to report any of the adverse effects other than if they're, unless they're fatal? How can, how can they say, well, this is safe and effective and that the FDA's 2000 approval process for mifepristone was appropriate? Well, the process in 2000 may have been appropriate, but from that time, the point is that over time, they've just continued to remove some the safeguards that maybe made it appropriate in 2000. Um, and, and maybe it wasn't appropriate in 2000, but we can say for sure that the uh, alterations that have been made, and the Fifth Circuit agrees with this, that the way the, the drug, has, the restrictions on the drug have been altered since 2000, particularly 2016 and 2021, that it did put women at risk. Chelsea Yeoman, National Director of Public Policy for the Texas-based Human Coalition, 
called the ruling a critical win for protecting children in the womb and upholding women's safety. So, okay, it's a court win, but it doesn't make any practical difference in the day-to-day dispensing of mifepristone. The only difference it can make is if women find out about this court ruling and they consider the fact that what the court has said could have a bearing on whether they should take the drug or not. That's, that's about the only thing. Now, um, obviously, as time goes by, uh, these court rulings are going to make a difference because eventually this is going to end up at the Supreme Court. And if you have these circuit courts, and the Fifth Circuit is more conservative, but if you have these, these circuit court decisions that are leaning in the direction of mifepristone being not safe for women— then it could weigh on the Supreme Court when they finally take the case and say, okay, we've looked at all the evidence and you know this could be another 5-4. This is, this is going to be controversial, obviously, because it's about abortion. It shouldn't be. Honestly, it, it, this, is, this should be, if everybody, if the left was truly as concerned about women's health as they say they are, and, and see, the thing that this does it, it really po- pokes a hole in this new mantra from the left that abortion is health care. Well, abortion can't be health care unless abortion is a some type of medical benefit and doesn't put a woman's life at risk. Mifepristone, apparently, is not health care because they're doing everything they can to cover up the fact that there are adverse side effects that now don't have to be reported, according to the FDA, unless it takes some, a woman's life. Um, by the way, you may have heard, this is just kind of an aside, uh, because there's been a big debate. Mifepristone is a two-drug um, application. So the way it works is you have mifepristone, which is administered first, and then the second one is, is misopristol, uh, so the two sets of pills. And mifepristone blocks where progesterone would normally be absorbed. And so there's a process that within 24, and I believe what I read this morning said 24 hours, I I think it's still 24 to 48 hours, there's a window after a woman has taken mifepristone, the first pill, that if she gets an injection or um, in some way, progesterone is in, 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 in put into her body in great amounts that it can overcome the effects of the first pill in about 65 to 68% to 70% of the cases. And so they call it the abortion reversal pill. And of course, that's controversial because some women do change their mind. I mean, there, there are babies that have been born today who their mothers intended to have an abortion, but between the time they took the first pill and the second, they had a change of heart. They took the abortion reversal pill, which was a megadose of progesterone, and they were able to uh, give birth. And now this is this pill, of course, is being um, threatened and has been labeled by the medical community as being a threat to women um, and having a lot of side effects. So uh, again. If everybody was concerned about the same thing, if instead of simply going out and stating something that's just blatantly false to me, that abortion is health care, um, it, it certainly isn't health care for the baby. Uh, it's a death sentence for the baby. 
Uh, and we now know that a lot, of, even in abortions that take place in abortion clinics with a doctor present, I mean, there's risk. There's, and it's an elective procedure. Um, it, it goes against the natural process that a woman is going through once she becomes pregnant to have a baby. And so the, the, the phrase abortion is health care is, is, well, it, it's always been ridiculous because there's, we, here we see the FDA lean, bending over backwards to cover up or to prevent the communication of adverse effects of this so-called health care procedure that it can have on women. If it's really about women's health and health care, then all of these should be magnified by the FDA. They should be looked at in depth and in detail instead of the FDA trying to find a way politically around its own procedures to make abortion more available because that's the mantra of progressives is that abortion's got to be, um, you know, it, it's not even a choice, it seems to me, now between a woman and her doctor because her doctor is being is not being told all of the information before he prescribes mifepristone from the prescribe to because the prescribers don't have to reveal all the information anymore. So what good is it to say, well, this has got to be between a woman and her doctor if the doctor is denied the information that he needs to give her um, the information that she can make the right decision for her? Um, and it's never honestly about the right decision for uh, a, the, the woman. It's about protecting the life of the baby in the womb. Um, it's it, Life should be something that we consider so precious that it should be protected. Um, and, and, you know, we, we're living in a culture now where people actually acknowledge uh, the ultrasound has made it impossible to just treat a baby in the womb as a clump of cells. Uh, that's just not a viable argument anymore. So now there are actually people who are saying, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's life. It doesn't matter that if it can feel pain. Um, we, we still have to protect a woman's right to abortion. It's her body. She gets to make that decision, even if it's a baby, even if the baby is suffering pain during the procedure. It doesn't matter. Personal autonomy trumps everything else, and the baby has to be done away with. Um, that's kind of where we are in our culture, and it's a scary place to be. All right. Um, the other court case that I want to talk about here is a climate change case out of Montana. Um, this is a according to the Washington Post. It's um, Katie Selig is the reporter who writes about this. And the first ruling of its kind nationwide. Now, this is they've had there have been international cases where people have sued um, the state in order to force them into climate change regulations that the legislature doesn't want to make. All of this, by the way, is an effort by progressives to circumvent the legislative process and to use the courts to get what they want. Uh, that's what progressives do. As long as the courts agree with them, then the courts are valid. If the courts don't agree with them, then we've got to get rid of the court. That's why you're seeing all these tax attacks against Clarence Thomas, uh, against Amy Coney Barrett, um, against uh, all of the conservative justices on the Supreme Court, because the the Supreme the progressives love the court as long as the court advances a progressive agenda. 
but they absolutely will not abide a court that doesn't agree with them, a, a court that looks at the law and says, here's what the law says, not what progressives want it to say. But anyway, back to, back to this. In the first ruling of its kind, a Montana state court decided Monday in favor of young people who alleged that the state violated their right to a clean and healthful environment by promoting the use of fossil fuels. Um, the court determined that a provision in the Montana Environmental Policy Act uh, has harmed the state's environment and the young plaintiffs by preventing Montana from considering the climate impacts of energy projects. The provision is accordingly unconstitutional, the court said. Now, of course, climate activists are doing backflips over this because they finally got a court. that, that This case, cases like this where particularly young people who are backed by a progressive organization out of Oregon, we'll talk more about that in a minute, have been going into court, and most of the courts are throwing these cases out on their face. I mean, it, it, there's it, particularly courts here in the United States. Now, internationally, internationally and courts around the world, they've got about a 50-50 record of winning in court, but in the United States, the courts have been throwing these cases out. Of the 14 that have been brought, 12 of them, I think, have been dismissed, and only a couple are still being considered. Uh, in this case in Montana, was, was one, is one of them. The ruling, <clears throat> which invalidates the provisions blocking climate considerations. See, Montana passed a law that said, <clears throat> if you're going to um, have an, an energy source here in the state, then you can't use climate change as a reason to not have this energy source um, exploited or uh, exploited is the wrong word. The energy source um, being, for example, coal being mined or uh, natural gas being extracted. Um, the, 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 the law in Montana says that climate change considerations can't be used to prevent energy projects, valid energy projects, from going forward. And that's what the judge found to be unconstitutional. The ruling that invalidates provisions blocking climate considerations um, also represents a rare victory for climate activists who have tried to sue the court, to use the courts rather, to push back against government policies and industrial activities they say are harming the planet. In this case, it involves 16 young, young Montanans ranging in age, get this, from five years old to 22 years old, who brought the nation's first constitutional and first youth-led climate lawsuit to go to trial. rest of them, the, the other, uh, as I said, 12 of them have been thrown out by the court. Um, this one went to trial, and there's another one being considered. These youths are elated by the decision, according to our Children's Trust. Now, let me get down here to the bottom of the story, because this is how far you have to go to find out who paid for all of this. Because obviously you've got, these are, these are children. Um, five years old is the youngest and up to age 22. Uh, 22's an adult, but most of the ones in this are children. Um, so it's, it's being paid for, like I said, by a group out of uh, Oregon, which is funding all, all of these lawsuits across the, the country. The nonprofit law firm, Our Children's Trust, that represents the plaintiffs, has taken legal action on behalf of youth in all 50 states and has cases pending in four other states. The firm's constitutional youth climate case 
against the Hawaii Department of Transportation is scheduled to go to trial in June of 2024. So they've got one other case that's actually made it onto a docket. The, as I said, most of these cases are thrown out. Uh, Juliana versus United States, a 2015 case bought, brought by our Children's Trust that drew international attention, is also back on path to trial after facing repeated setbacks. The case took aim at the federal government, alleging that it had violated the 21 youth's rights to life, liberty, and property. So this is a federal case. They're working this from the federal level um, as well, of course, as the state level. Again, to and, and the end goal is to impose climate change rules, draconian climate change rules, on state government and federal government, um, rules that the legislature won't consider. Uh, and I mean, this is again, it, it's legislation by the by the law in a sense that it's using the courts to enact law that the legislature should be responsible for. In a constitutional republic, it's got to work that way. You're supposed to have the separation of powers. The legislature makes a decision about what's going to go on the books as a law, and then the courts are supposed to determine whether those laws are constitutional under state or federal constitution. It was never intended for the legal system to be used as a hammer for progressives to get their way. Um, but this is exactly what's happening. Um, just a little bit more here. The sweeping win, one of the strongest decisions on climate change ever issued by a court, could energize the environmental movement and usher in a wave of causes aimed at advancing action on climate change, experts say. You know, we never, know, we never find out who these experts are. These are just the experts that say everything. Uh, as it relates to climate change or any other progressive agenda. There are always experts in the background. The ruling, which invalidates the provision blocking climate considerations, also represents a rare victory for climate activists who have tried to use the courts to push back against government policies and industrial activities they say are harming the planet. So this, this, is, this Washington Post story comes replete with pictures of these uh, young people that were in the lawsuit they testified about asthma uh, that they say was caused and exacerbated by climate change. They testified about being uh, having anxiety over glaciers that are melting and that that's causing them physical harm because they can't stop thinking about their future. And all of this, it it was bought by this judge um, in Montana. Now this is going to this is of course this ruling will be appealed. And it's possible that the Montana Supreme Court, we don't know what they'll do, but they could throw this out. Um, I mean, this, this, is, this is a hammer in, in the hands of progressives beating on the justice, assist, justice system to conform it to their philosophy so that they can get through the courts what they can't get through the legislature. And our country's legal system, I mean, we, we can't survive that. Um, we have to have separation of powers. We can't have people using the legal system in this country to write law. The, the justices are supposed to determine whether the laws written by the legislature are valid. All right. Um, I told you at the top of the show today we're going to talk about the difference between being nice and being kind. This is coming from a story that, or an opinion column that was written by uh, Ben Shapiro, and I, th I thought it was pretty interesting. 
because it, it, you know, the idea, I, I don't know how many of you have seen this, but like I'm driving around town, I'm going between Columbia and Greenville and I'll get behind usually a Prius, uh, not, not necessarily all the time. And I'm not, you know, casting shade over throwing shade on a Prius, on a Prius, but I'm just saying that, you know, there's a certain mindset that, that puts a bumper sticker on that just says, be nice. Everybody be nice. Now, be nice means accept every statement that anybody makes. Don't challenge it. Don't suggest that there is anything like absolute truth. Make sure that you believe everything is subjective and never get into a discussion with somebody where you actually challenge their behavior because it's destructive. Because they get to be them. They get to, the, the statement is, you go do you. You get to be you. And if being you means being a drug addict, uh, if being you means ruining your life by some other type of addiction, then the nice thing to do is just to simply say, you go be you. But the kind thing to do in that situation would be to challenge that and try to help somebody to overcome a destructive tendency in their life that maybe they don't see. Um being nice, this is coming from Shapiro. He writes at Daily Wire, being nice to someone means you're non-offensive to them. Being kind means you're looking out for them. And I think that's a, that is an important distinction. To be kind means that you're taking the truth of the situation, the truth of the circumstances into consideration. You're not just looking at the person and saying, well, whatever that person wants to do, regardless of the effect it has on them, so be it. It means that you're going to tell them something that they possibly don't want to hear. Is it kind to tell somebody that if they are, um, you come across somebody, and this is an extreme example, of course, uh, you come across somebody that's got a hatchet and they're hacking away at one of their arms or legs. Uh, you know, do you want to go up to that person and just say, okay, you be you, or do you try to get the hatchet away from them and get some kind of help because they're having a a mental issue here. It's, you know, it's kind when you tell people you're doing something that's hurting yourself, stop doing it. That's the kind thing to do. If you have a friend who's a drug abuser, you simply say, you do you, that may be nice, but it's not kind. If you have a child who regularly does bad things and you let them, that may be nice, but it's not kind. Kindness is undergirded by a belief in some sort of higher good. And that's something that we have lost complete track of in the country. Nobody's thinking about the higher good. Nobody's asking the question. It's all about personal. We've mentioned it several times on the program today. I may do a whole show one day about the meaning of personal autonomy and how that uh, idea of personal autonomy ha is ruining our culture. Um, but th that's the prevailing idea, that there is no greater good. The greater good is only served by you being nice and letting everybody do what they want to do, whether it's good for them or not. Kindness means you have to use your judgment. You have to be, in some case, um, and, and I'm going to use this word because Shapiro uses it, but judgmental. Now, I would say not judgmental, discerning. You're, you're looking at a situation and injecting truth into it about another person to try to help them be better. That's the kind thing to do. You have to know that not being a drug addict is actually morally preferable 
to being a drug addict. You do have to say to yourself, you know, there's two things going on here. There's a person who's a drug addict. Would it be better for them or worse if they were not a drug addict? Well, any thinking person is going to say it'd be better for them not to be ruining their lives with drugs. So how can it be nice? I mean, you, you may think that you're being nice by telling them it's okay for them to be them, but what you're actually doing is undermining their quality of life and helping them to hasten their own death. Uh, you have to say that certain behavior is better than other behavior. It is an act of kindness to chide your fellow man when your fellow man goes astray. Uh, niceness says that's mean, that we're being mean to each other if we don't just affirm everybody's personal decisions. When you have an entire moral system that's based not on kindness, but on niceness, or when you wipe away the moral framework, all you're left with is niceness. Of course, niceness is going to fall apart because what ends up happening is that people take advantage of niceness. Niceness lasts only as long as someone's fist doesn't touch your face, and it turns out, according to Shapiro, that that's not very long. It turns out when you don't have a shared moral framework, and I've, I've talked about this when I have opportunities to speak on this, I talk about a shared moral framework, which, and this is the way I put it, when I was growing up, what was right at my house was right at the neighbor's house, it was right at the courthouse, it was right at the schoolhouse, it was right at the church house, and it was right at the White House. In other words, we all had things that we agreed were morally correct that were necessary for a culture and society to survive in order for us to live together in peace, to have, as um, um, the Jewish scholars would say, to experience shalom, which is the peace of living morally and, uh, and being upright with each other. Um, if we're going to have that, we have to have this shared moral framework. If we ditch the moral framework, if we simply say that there's nothing that's inherently right, nothing that's inherently wrong, then what society and culture becomes is a race to the bottom. It's not elevating culture to say anybody's behavior, no matter what it is, is fine. It has no moral consequences. If we can't agree that there are moral consequences to the decisions we make and agree what those consequences are and what the validity of the moral decisions are, we can't live together because eventually... It, things will just collapse into chaos. And don't you feel that a little bit? I mean, don't you feel like the culture that we're living in today is headed toward, and perhaps even in the middle of, this chaos of subjective morality where nothing is right or wrong? Um, in game theory, this, this is uh, back to Shapiro's piece here. In game theory, in The Prisoner's Dilemma, the person who benefits the most is the person who is not nice and violates all the rules. See, politically right now, um, it, when I step into the political arena and I say that we need to calm our discourse, that we need to be more generous in the way that we treat people that we disagree with, we need to be more humble in our own opinions, then I'm dismissed. I'm just completely, oh, you're, you just want to be nice and nice guys finish last. And this is not an environment to be nice. We need to be aggressive. We need to be mean. We need to assert our rights and to 
and use whatever language and whatever tactics is necessary. There's nothing off the table because winning is everything. That's the political philosophy that we have today. And, and please hear what I'm saying here. That is That may be a naturalist philosophy, the survival of the fittest, but that is not Christian doctrine. Because Christ has called us to a different place as believers. He's tell, Christ tells us there is power in humility. There is, it is when we are weak that God proves himself to be strong. But you say that, you step out and say that in the political arena today, and you get laughed off the stage. You get, you get discounted. Why is Mike Pence not gaining any traction? As a presidential candidate, I mean, he's been a governor of a state. He's been the vice president of the United States. He he was a person who helped Donald Trump to maintain um, the leadership that he had as president of the United States. And of course, now he's being dismissed as a candidate because he's too nice. He's just he's just not the right kind of. We need somebody like Donald Trump, who's 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 you know, he tells it like it is without any kind of consideration about what the right thing or the wrong thing is to say. And, of course, Pence has been discarded because a lot of people believe this, this lie that Mike Pence could have put kept Donald Trump in the White House, that he had the power, that if on January 6th he had simply said, nope, I'm not going to certify the electors, even though they've been duly certified by the states, I'm going to kick the whole thing back to the states, then he became the ultimate betrayer of Donald Trump. And that's the worst thing you can be politically for some people is somebody who doesn't agree with Donald Trump on something or doesn't defend him no matter what. And so, but but the main slap against Mike Pence is he can't be president because he's just too nice. We used to value kindness and we, and we used to value people who were nice that were that and their niceness was backed up by the kindness by the fact that they were willing to say what's true but in a way that was for somebody else's benefit and not in a way that was to tear them down again we we go back to the scripture the bible clearly says that we're we're supposed the things that come out of our mouth are supposed to be wholesome uplifting to those that are hearing us speak um, and, and that's true even when those things are challenging. You know, when I go to somebody, just like the illustration that Shapiro uses here, when I go to somebody who I know is engaged in behavior that's destroying them, I want them to stop that behavior. Why? Because I care about them. Because I care about what their behavior is doing, not only to them, but to those around them, to their family, which ultimately affects all of us in culture. And so this is, you know, I, I find this to be a, a great piece here. Um, in game theory, the prisoner's dilemma, the person who benefits the most is the person who's not nice and violates all the rules. Because while you're playing by nice rules, they're doing what they want. They're getting ahead and they're winning. So you say, well, hold on a second. I don't want to play by those rules. I'm not going to play by those rules. And then it's just a race to the bottom. That's exactly right. Once you decide that there are no rules, that, you, that the way to get ahead is to disregard decency, to disregard morality, and to do whatever it takes to win, once you decide that that's okay, 
then we're on the way to the bottom. It's just who's, who's going to get there the fastest, who's going to get there first. Uh, you can see this in the polling data. By the late 1990s, Democrats thought most Republicans were bad people. But Republicans simply thought most Democrats were wrong. In other words, it took a while for the Republicans to come around to decide that, well, these are not just wrong people, these are evil people. Um, but roughly by 2014, Republicans started to echo that maybe Democrats are also bad people. So you've got both political sides now, Democrats and Republicans, who think the other side is made up of bad people. And that, so we, we can have, I mean, you, you can't have a discussion with bad people. And, and this is, this is part of the problem too, as we've, as we've ejected any kind of moral authority, then as a Christian, I, I can't have a conversation with you if you don't support some type of moral underpinning to your arguments. I mean, if you just want to say that abortion, a, a woman has a right to kill her baby in the womb because of personal autonomy, and you're not willing to think about things like the image of God expressed in every life, you're not willing to think about how it's not just about a woman's uh, personal autonomy, it's about the baby's right to life. I mean, the, how can we, we're coming from so completely different worldviews and starting points that it is difficult for us to have a conversation that is meaningful. Um, but we've got to find a way to do it because there, there's another story today, and I'm not going to have time to get to the TUI story, by the way. I, I, I need to do a little bit more research on that anyway. Um, but, I, but I do want to talk about it because I think it's another story that is indicative of our culture. There's a piece today, and I'm just going to end with this. This is Michael Brandon Doherty. He writes for National Review, and I, I don't always agree with him, He's, but, but he has a compelling way of making his arguments. Um, a lot of times I, I do agree with him, but it's just sometimes uh, so there are things that, that we don't agree on. But he has um, a long sort of allegorical story today um, that I'm not going to get into, but the title is A Storm is Coming. And he talks about the fact that for some reason um, his son – who, let's see, I don't know if he, no, nope, he, he doesn't talk about the age of his son. I'm guessing he's seven, eight, something like that. Um, so, but his son comes and jumps in the bed with him at night because several times uh, this summer, for some reason, his son has been looking out the window more and noticing when a storm is approaching. And he thinks that they're going to have a tornado. He thinks that they're going to have severe weather, and it scares him. And he comes and looks for comfort from his dad. Well, Doherty takes this and says, as we look forward into the rest of 2023, and especially into 2024, we need to see that there's a storm coming. And it is a storm that is of our own making. We are about to get into the most acrimonious, hateful political season, I believe, maybe in the history of this country. Now, you, you go back to the colonial years, you go back to the early days of our republic, and there were, there were some really uh, acrimonious and, and bad uh, political fights. But the difference today is 
the access to information and immediate access we have through social media makes our fights national fights. You might have regional fights before. You might have isolated region, uh, local incidences because of the political acrimony and the differences between the political parties. But now every question is elevated to national status through social media and the ability for us to yell at each other from California to South Carolina. And I'm, I'm concerned these charges, as they multiply against Donald Trump, the demand for charges against President Biden, the fact that President Biden is clearly, clearly not at his best mentally or physically, that at 80 years old, now, are there 80 years old that could be president and do a good job? I'm sure there are. But you just look at the evidence surrounding Biden, it's obvious that he isn't one of them. And so, and, and there's abundant evidence now that there's, there was some real chicanery going on when Joe Biden was vice president and was going helping his son Hunter going around the world and gain a lot of money for the Biden family. It was all about the Biden family. So all of this is on the table politically. And look at what we're looking at. Donald Trump is charged in four separate cases, two state cases, and um, no, three state cases. No, I'm sorry, two state cases and two federal cases. And he's... All of this is going to be front and center as he is the front runner for the Republican nomination for president. And the same is true for Biden. He is the incumbent seeking re-election. And he is surrounded by all of these accusations. And it is crystal clear to anybody who pays attention that he is no longer fit to be president mentally or physically. At least it appears to me that that's the case. And I think a lot of people agree. Even Democrats are concerned about this. That's the political environment that we're heading into. I mean, you've got uh, just today threats against the judge in the case for the January 6th trial for President Trump. They arrested a Texas woman because she basically said she was going to kill the judge. And she's threatened other people. Um, and, and this is this is happening on the left and the right. Progressives are making death threats against conservatives, conservatives against progressives. Um, if, you're, if you're not on our side, not only do you deserve to lose, but you don't deserve to live. I mean, that's the storm that I'm afraid is coming. And the only thing that we can do is to cry out to a holy God and ask him to send us heart changes. This is a heart issue. It can't be fixed by politics. It's got to be fixed by something that works on the inside. And the only thing that has the power to change a human heart is the power of God through his son, Jesus Christ. We as believers need to be talking about the storm. We need to be pointing out that we're in a bad place in our country right now because of the acrimony and the things that are going on out there uh, that could lead us to a point where words become fist and then become worse than that. All right, that's the only, that's all the time we've got. Actually, I'm running over time a little bit today. Tomorrow, we'll dig into this story about the Tuies and Michael Orr and talk about how that's kind of a reflection of where we are in the culture. 
So I hope you'll join us tomorrow. Don't forget to go get the podcast today. Should be up in about 20 minutes. Give us a good review and pass the word that you like truth and culture and politics. Bye.